Ladies and gentlemen, Greg Proops. There's no business like show business like no business I know. Welcome back once again to the Greg Proops Film Club as we convene here in the darkened hallway at the end of the tennis shoe corridor of the Fairfax end of the deli block near the weird new gas station that no one knows the brand of. Here in the salubrious confines of CineFamily, LA's third leading architect of cinema repository, reductive, reflective, and uh, in repertory always here. Uh, the Cine Family here on Fairfax Avenue is where the Greg Proops Film Club is coming to you this time. Tonight we're going to be showing Sydney Limit's 1975 classic bank high stroke, psychosexual stroke, political activist thriller, uh, Dog Day Afternoon. And it's going to be groovy. If you're proop casting out there in proop cast land, proop sailing around and you're a proop sailor and or a bed in your proop chamber watching your flat screen proop, it's about time to light one up or it's about time to pour one down or it's about time to get one down your neck, as they say. It's uh, also getting time to cue that film up. Uh, I don't know how you can purloin a copy of Dog Day Afternoon if you don't have one. I'm hoping you could piece together a YouTube version. Uh, sometimes you can do that. Uh, otherwise, I would just steal one. If there's any place left in your neighborhood, the blockbuster in my neighborhood closed a couple of months ago, uh, or I read it on um, uh, MySpace. And um, thank you very much. Uh, this picture is, is a wild... We've been on a 70s jag on the show. Uh, for Christmas, we showed Scrooge, which is from 1970. No, not uh, Scrooge, but the musical Scrooge by Leslie Brickhuis. Thank you. With uh, Albert Finney. It's a marvelous Christmas picture. And then uh, we showed Taking a Pelham 123 last month, and now Dog Day Afternoon. These are all my wife's requests. Scrooge was mine. Uh, Dog Day and, and Pelham were her choices, and I couldn't agree more. I think it's the apex of 70s filmmaking. You've all read the book... Um, uh, the name of which I've just recently forgotten at the beginning of that sentence. Easy Riders and... What? Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. Yeah, Raging Bulls and Easy Riders and Raising... And Raising Bulls and Air and Riders that are easy was the name. It was an Easy Riding Bull extravaganza, and it's quite a good book. And uh, it really goes into depth about all the 70s pictures. And uh, 75, uh, I know it's a personal predilection of mine, because as I described, everyone in the 70s has to wear high collars and, and bell-bottoms and plaid, and uh, there's a lot of comb-over type hairdos. And uh, this one, this movie doesn't have uh, a Waka Waka soundtrack. Uh, you'll find, as you watch, yeah, it's disappointingly, like, um, Taking a Pelham 123 had this bitching opening, like, bom, 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 and then it, through the movie, it kind of went, dun, dun, bum, 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 you know, like that. A lot of the 70s movies will be like, oh, 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 right, which is the best part. And then the weird, the weird clacky thing that no one knows the name of that's in every, every 70s. One. And then sometimes if you're lucky, it has that Curtis Mayfield uh, Afro drum Cuban thing, you know, the uh, Planet of the Apes, by the way, which is not quite a 70s movie, but almost. Um, it has a 70s movie ethos from the 60s. Uh, the soundtrack to that one, there's a lot of, you know, like it's really good. Um, 
But this movie you'll find as you watch it is gripping for several reasons. One, it's beautifully acted, tautly directed, uh, pacily written and improvised in certain parts. But um, there's no soundtrack at all. It's just sweaty. Uh, It's a hostage-taking movie, and so you sweat along with the whole cast as you watch this picture. Um, It was filmed in New York, but not during the hottest part of the year. It was actually filmed during weather so cold that the actors put ice in their mouths so there wouldn't be... Yeah. but the setting is very definitely the summer, and they make everyone wear summertime clothes. Now, this picture um, was directed by uh, Sidney Lumet, and Sidney Lumet, uh, in, for my money, can hold his own with any director that ever walked the face of the earth. Um, Sidney Lumet only passed away a couple of years ago, and he uh, was nominated for four Oscars, which I never... Yippee. Uh, if I told you he wasn't nominated for any, you'd still believe me that he was a good director. I don't think it's really been the benchmark for many a year. But here's the point. His movies that he got nominated for are all very, very memorable. 12 Angry Men, Dark Afternoon Network, and The Verdict. And he also made Serpico. And if he'd only made those movies, those movies alone, he would be awesome beyond all measure. But, of course, he made lots and lots of movies. Here's the point of Sidney Lumet. He never made a movie in Hollywood. And he wasn't a Hollywood director. He came from the theater in New York, uh, and then he was in television in New York, and then he started making pictures, and he made a few pictures in Britain. He made a picture called The Hill uh, that has Sean Connery. He made several movies with Sean Connery, including The Anderson Tapes, which is a bitching 70s heist film, and that I was very tempted to show, because uh, as deep and resonant as this movie is about uh, like transgender rights and uh, socio-economical uh, strata and how it forces us all into our own position against the overpowering presence of the oppressive man who will never let up with his uh, excessive violence and, and, and complete control domination, uh, white people tactics. Uh, the Anderson tapes is just like, let's steal some money from a condo. <laughs> it's really good. Um, we're not showing that tonight. The majority of his films were shot not in Hollywood. This is from his uh, obituary from the Guardian newspaper. In and around New York, Lumet's book, M- M- Making Movies, a lucid account of all aspects of the film business, used his own works for textual analysis and included a coda, almost a lament, in which he railed against the studio's interference. He had become increasingly aware there was little space, even in his beloved New York, for works inspired for social commitment and passion, less still for those derived from great plays and literature. What a familiar refrain that is. And now that we're in the last vestiges of television where you're watching television sink under the, it's the, the weight of Duck Dynasty and Storage Wars, where once there were proud franchises that held tall for writing and acting and launched movie stars into their mad careers and stuff like that, everyone from George Clooney to uh, you know Steve McQueen, whoever you can think of, Clint Eastwood, for fuck's sake, uh, now that we're watching television sort of become like the last raft out of the fucking Amazon during Pizarro's retreat. Um, Yeah. Uh, The idea that they do anything like classics now, great plays in literature, or uh, what does he say? Little space for works inspired by social commitment and passion. Um, Frankly, um, as someone, a a Hollywood asshole once said to me at a meeting, when everyone zigs, you have to zag. And... (laughs) Teach you, I will. <laughs> These are the ways of the shadow. And he's right. And t- 
to be honest, this would be the best time ever if television went as in-depth and as committed as it ever had, right? I mean, this would be the time really right now for Hollywood to have a 70s renaissance and give a bunch of money to a lot of shit-hot 28-year-old women and give them a fucking camera and let them go out there and make movies about what's happening now and not... I know I always say Green Hornet 14, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Fast and Furious 6, are we on now? Really? Really, you guys? Really? How high can you be? How high can you be? I can be high. I'm often high. I'm high now. I'm not high enough for Fast and Furious 8, okay? This time it's, this time it's Latvian. You know what I mean? No. I'm not going for it. Uh, this would be an awesome time for TV to just settle the fuck down and go like, we're going to be like Edward R. Murrow now. Every show is going to be an in-depth look. Not a sensational look, because that's what you get on TV. You know, like, uh, the, the, you turn on TV and they go like, um, uh, can avocados kill you? Is your uncle a time bomb? I'm like, no, my uncle's not a time bomb. And, <laughs> and then every show is like, you know, prison rape. They never just have a look at anything. It always has to be really yucky. It's not so much the content I disagree with because I feel people should be frank. It's the yuckiness. In this critic's opinion, there's far too much yuck. Uh, his diatribe echoed the words of a character played by Peter Finch in Lumet's Network, a black comedy written by Patty Chayefsky. Is it a black comedy? Wow. That's a pe- that only an English critic would only see it as a comedy. <laughs> it is a comedy, and it is a black, a mordant, uh, morbid even. If you've never seen Network, spoiler alert, it's about TV. And uh, uh, Peter Finch goes mad, and when he goes mad, they put him on the air. Uh, he's, he's a regular newscaster when there was news and that mattered. When white guys read you the news at fucking 7 o'clock. That America. It's from then. And... Uh, he's one of those white guys who reads the news and he goes mad one day and he comes in fucking soaking wet having talked to God and he thinks he's, a, you know, like channeling and they put him on the air and instead of doing the news he gets up and gives a fucking mad diatribe and the ratings go through the fucking roof so he gets his own show every night and on the show and this is what's so great about Network it's just like TV of now. What they laughed at in 1974, we, of course, became immediately. There's a terrorist group that goes around every week on a reality show and kills people and knocks over banks. That's one of the shows. There's, on his show, the news program, Sybil the Soothsayer. Uh, yeah, a woman sits in a fucking toga and reads the future and shit. Uh, and then, uh, what's the other one? There's a lawyer show, like a Nancy Grace, you know. Uh, weighs the fucking scales of justice or whatever like those are all segments that's what the news has become and of course now when you watch the news and shit and you see Anderson Cooper and Wolf Blitzer and your heart sinks into the soles of your shoes and you think I really I'm going back to the internet and this time it's just kitten vids um, I wonder if hamster on a piano is still available hamster on a piano uh, he made 12 angry men he did uh, Long Day's Journey Into Night, which is a superb motion picture from 62 with Ralph Richardson, Jason Robards, um, Catherine Hepburn, and uh, from Quantum Leap. Help me. Scott <laughs> Dean Stockwell. Dean Stockwell. Thank you. I had a momentary uh, moment. And uh, that's uh, Eugene O'Neill's plan. It's just superb. Uh, Failsafe is his nuclear war movie. He really covered the waterfront. Uh, he did John Le Carre, then the Anderson tapes. Um, 
Murder on the Orient Express. And I bet that movie made more money than any other movie he ever made. And that one is really schlocktastic. It's fantastic. Al- Albert Finney wears the most outlandish hairdo and mustache in 70s movie. He looks like a, he's a, like if you opened up his head, candy would come out his neck. It's so waxy that you're just like, and he's doing an accent like this. No, has to be it's fucking good uh, Then Serpico Which is off the deep end Fucking do yourself a favor uh, This weekend and make it a Serpico weekend Make it an Al Pacino weekend Hey Some wine We'll get that pop uh, Serpico and the dog the afternoon uh, Pacino's career at the same time Godfather 1, Godfather 2 Serpico and dog day afternoon Again, if Al Pacino had only made a couple movies Wowzers, McTavish um, Then he had Network um, And then strangely The Wiz <laughs> I'm going to ease on down Ease on down that road The less said about The Wiz the better Sidney Lumet always made movies with a point. The Verdict is a superb movie. Uh, I'm not a, uh, you know, David Mamet, whatevs. But the point is this. Um, that movie didn't do anything at the box office. Paul Newman got good notices for it. It's a tremendous picture about the legal system in this country and lawyers and people in general, the human condition. He's an alcoholic. Cheers. <laughs> it's really amazing. So, Dog Day. Um, I had the fortune of uh, one of the cats who listens to my show. And if you want to write me, it's um, fanmail4greg at gmail.com. You can email me personally. I try to answer them. I'm way behind. But I answered this one, strangely. If you want to ask a question on the show, which we don't answer on this version, but we do answer on the regular Poopcast, smartestatuspecialthing.com. Um, we're going to be back here uh, in a week. First of all, this Saturday we'll be at the Nerd Melt uh, doing a, a regular vodcast. That's without film songs, cinema. And then... Um, on the 11th, we'll be back here showing uh, Alfred Hitchcock's wartime groove mess lifeboat hero, which is a really wildly entertaining motion picture if you've never seen it. How can a bunch of people in a lifeboat be entertaining? Because Hitchcock knew how to fucking shoot a movie. Um, he could shoot the shit out of a play. He could have done a movie called Sofa, and you'd be like, wow. Uh, what happens next? Don't kick under the cushions. Yeah, he's good. He's quite good. Uh, and a fellow named Aaron, I don't give out the last names, uh, hipped me uh, to his uncle, who is Chris Sarandon. Now, uh, to give you a little bit about this picture, uh, Al Pacino's the star. Al Pacino was already a star from having done uh, Godfather and Serpico. Now, this is 75. He's at the apex of his looks, his career. He's just fantastic. Uh, he'd been in about five or six movies at this point. John Cazale, who we'll get to in a second, this is his first movie. And Chris Sarandon, who'd been a Broadway star, plays Leon, uh, the transgendered boyfriend whom... Al Pacino, I won't blow the plot for you. Let's put it this way. Chris Sarandon does a small turn in this movie that's unforgettable. He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for it. Um, I wasn't able to speak to him, but I emailed him. And I have Chris Sarandon's email answers about the making of Dog Day Afternoon with me here today. And I would like to share them with you. Uh, it was his first movie role. You may remember Chris Sarandon. Who's Chris Sarandon, I hear you say? Um, a little movie called The Princess Bride. Uh, he's the... Uh, and uh, Fright Night, for those of you who go back to the, yeah, buddy. Uh, Nightmare, uh, Before Christmas, he's the voice of Jack Skellington. And, of course, he was on ER. Uh, and lots. Of, he's been in a million things. Um, he's an actor of some range. He's quite good looking. Uh, 
and has played everything from Jesus in a TV movie uh, to like, uh, I think he's in The Sentinel. And he's also awesomely in the first great uh, rape revenge movie, Lipstick, with uh, Margot Hemingway from like 77. Uh, I emailed him and I asked him, how did you approach this role? His role is Al Pacino's boyfriend. Al Pacino also has a wife in the movie that he robs the bank for. Like any other, except I had real life information. This is a true story. It actually happened and was a magazine article, uh, two different magazine articles. And then Robert Pearson uh, uh, wrote the script. And uh, it's extraordinary. how the, it's, It was a real bank robbery and the guys ended up in jail. And uh, so they were, they were alive and saw the movie and liked it. Uh, I was able to use these sources for physical recreation. What's inside a character one must create with what the writer, the other actress, and the director provide? Did it have any uh, bearing knowing you were portraying someone alive and real? I asked. Of course, the changes one approach. There's a certain duty to be true to the real-life circumstances rather than letting it come totally from the script in one's own imagination. And I asked, did Lumet... Um, have them improvise because when you see the scenes he's in there's always been talk that they improvise them the original script was brilliant in fact out of all the Oscar nominations for Dog Day Frank Pearson's screenplay was the only Oscar winner but both Al Pacino and I felt the telephone scene not quite right one day in rehearsal we began improvising based on the original scene but with our ideas for its beginning less melodramatically Sidney Lumet our director loved the improv and asked that it be recorded we did several improvs, and after each, we talk about how it could be improved. All told, we narrowed it down to four or five versions, then had a meeting with all involved and agreed on a final version, which was the one seen in the movie. That is unbelievably good. When you see the scene, you'll be like, oh, my goodness. Uh, were you able to hear Al Pacino as you did the scene? They're on the phone together. Yes, both Al and I were on either end, uh, on the other end of the line for each other's takes, which were shot on different nights due to the location requirements, one taking place in the bank, Al's, and one in the barbershop, mine. Um, you all right? I hear a lot of sighing going on out there right now. <laughs> I just heard someone go, <sighs> I didn't know you were going to have actual interviews that came from today with the actors who are in the movie. I thought this was going to be uninformative. Wow, jaded sophisticate. I'm sorry I couldn't produce Chris Sarandon from his home on the East Coast for you. Don't make me cock slap this crowd. You know what can happen? No, you know what can happen? We can not show the fucking movie and I can just stay up here and drink and get bitter. How's that fucking grab you? It's about time, film clubbers. You started to realize the impact of what we're fucking doing here. This isn't like a big... I don't go home at the end of the, every film club I perform here at the Cine Family and go, fuck, that's that mortgage paid. If you know what I'm saying? I do this because I love fucking cinema. And so do you, and that's why you're here. So... A little less conversation, a little more action. You know what I'm saying? A little less scratching yourself and yawning and a little more fucking rapt attention... Chris Sarandon emailed me this this morning, okay? I don't know how much hotter off the fucking press it can be. I tried to ask some pertinent questions, like did Lumet let them improvise? When you see the goddamn movie, you'll realize the fucking cogency, the trenchancy, and the fucking, this is film 101. Come home. Come home to me. 
Come back to me. Go over there. Uh, in any case, hangover three is supposed to be. John Cazale plays the other part in this movie. The characters are Sonny, Sal, yeah. Chris Sarandon plays Leon, and uh, uh, John Cazale plays Sal. Now, Sal, in real life, was 18 years old. Uh, yeah. Uh, this is an article from, uh, I think it's The Onion. It's a review of a, um, a, 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 a documentary about John Cazale called I Knew It Was You. It was made a couple years ago. You can go online and find it. This you can watch for free. Um, John Cazale died from lung cancer 35 years ago. We look at winning streaks as impressive accomplishments, da-da-da. John Cazale, all five of the movies he appeared in during his short career in the 70s were nominated for Best Picture. The Godfather, The Conversation, Godfather 2, Dog Day Afternoon, and Deer Hunter, and that's his career in film. He made five movies and then died at the age of 42, I believe it was. And those are the five movies he's in. Uh, five indelible 70s movies. I'm always on about the 70s. John Cazale is part and parcel of the 70s. His hairline is disturbing. <laughs> he's lugubrious. He's almost cataclysmically vulnerable in every role he plays no matter which picture of the five we're talking about in The Deer Hunter close to unforgettable uh, in Godfather 1 and Godfather 2 he's doing to be honest he's the subtle secret weapon of the movie right in the first movie you've got Brando and Pacino and James Caan who's kicking it around and then in the second one you've got De Niro and Pacino but John Cazale in both those movies goes through more changes and uh, lets you in emotionally. If, if Al Pacino is a great movie star, which he is, and also a superb film actor and stage actor, John Cazale is like an actor's actor who's acting behind people who are acting. Um, if you look at like, okay, for instance, a marathon of Cazale's films takes over 13 hours, full of memorable scenes with Gene Hackman, Marlon Brando, Christopher Walken, Robert De Niro, Meryl Streep, and Al Pacino. And that's who he's up against in all these movies. And you remember John Cazale um, because he's such a wonderful um, and sensitive film actor. There's a picture about him called I Knew It Was You, Rediscovering John Cazale, Richard Shepard's film isn't all encompassing. It's only 40 minutes, blah, 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 blah. But Pacino talks about him in it. Um, take an hour, watch I Knew It Was You, below or via more legit sources. It was on the Onion's website. If you, if you just uh, uh, Google it, you can get it for free. And rediscover one of the most underappreciated and subtly... Uh, sub what did he write there? Oh, subtly brilliant film actors ever. It's true. He was on stage with um, Al Pacino, and they started off-Broadway. They did a uh, play called The Indian Wants the Bronx, written by Israel Horovitz, which is, there's always a Beastie's Boy connection. Uh, the King Ad Rock is uh, Israel, Israel Horovitz is his father. Uh, and uh, yeah, the King Ad Rock, that is my name. And I know the fly place where they got the champagne. Uh, and it was the one who said, it's like the taking of the Pelham 123. So uh, the, I don't think there's a group that checks more 70s movies than the Beastie Boys. Uh, frankly, I said after this and uh, uh, after showing Pelham 123 and, and um, Dog Day Afternoon, all that's missing is Cleopatra Jones, Coffee, and Five Fingers of Death. You know what I mean? If we were going to do the fucking 70s, like, gambit. Maybe, maybe the 7-ups, if anyone remembers that fine motion picture. Yeah, fucking A. Uh, Frank Pearson wrote this movie and won the Oscar for it. Oh, kittens, it's about time to roll here. Um, 
This is what Frank Pearson said. He, he only passed away a year ago. And he wrote Cat Baloo, which is a marvelous uh, comedy from the 60s. He wrote uh, the Anderson tapes. And he was working on Mad Men when he, uh, when he died. Um, in any case, uh, it was quite risky. He revealed how Al Pacino quit Dog Day Afternoon Project several times during pre-production. One such dramatic exit process, Pacino gave him excellent advice on perfecting the character of Sonny. It was quite risky back in the mid-70s to portray a man in love with another man. Yeah, and they put in brackets. It still is. Fucking A. Uh, and in Pearson's initial draft, the portrayed relationship between Sonny and Leon featured a lot of references to gay sex and intimate details. The studio's working title was Boys in the Bank. <laughs> I'd, I'd really like to hold on to your velvet rope. <laughs> I'd like you to enter my banquet room. Thank you. I was trying to take the subtle Al Pacino approach. I didn't want it to be too gross. As I said before, it's the yuck that I don't like. Pacino said two people in that situation at their breaking point and committing desperate acts in the name of love would never be thinking about sex and the story should take a higher road and avoid such titillation which would only cheapen the whole thing Pearson listened and the final script was changed to make Sonny and Leon more human and universal Pearson also appropriated appropriately appropriately Pearson also appropriated Pearson also (laughs) took the recently departed director of Dog Day Afternoon, Sidney Lumet, and said that when you watch a Lumet movie, you can't tell if it's him, not like Scorsese or Coppola. One of Lumet's main talents was to find the film style that best told the story instead of forcing his style into the story. A bit backhanded, but I get what you're talking about. I think you can tell a Sidney Lumet movie. I would compare him to Robert Wise, who also had social content in a great deal of his movies. Uh, the Day the Earth Stood Still, uh, Odds Against Tomorrow, um, West Side Story and Sound of Music but Robert Wise did a lot of movies that were about the man and stuff like that too and uh, I I, I think that you could say that about him a lot of 50s directors like Nick Ray and whatnot a lot of them had mad style uh, and Robert Wise isn't one of them like Sidney Lumet isn't, isn't Coppola they yell Attica in the movie. A quick briefing on what Attica was. I know there's young people listening. I don't presume your abject ignorance of it, but trust me, there's people listening. When they start chanting Attica in the movie and the crowd goes crazy, they're going to be like... And then you get too afraid to ask. So I'm here to answer that fucking question, and I don't want you to be embarrassed. It's okay that you don't know what Attica was. Um, it happened in 71. Now, first of all, understand, in that days there was a giant... Uh, uh, yeah, obviously, uh, um, uh, a black liberation movement in this country. And the Black Panthers were working all over the country, uh, feeding children, indoctrinating people. That, you know, they, they had a, a big program going on. And they were also being incarcerated by the FBI. And there was the Soledad Brothers, George Jackson. He was in San Quentin. There was a shootout in San Quentin. George Jackson died. A couple of weeks after this, Attica Prison in upstate New York, right? Um, there be- became a riot. A thousand of Attica's prison, uh, uh, there was 2,200 inmates, um, seized control of the prison and took 33 staff of the prison hostage. When it was over, 39 people were dead. Uh, it started on um, September 1971. The inmates gained control of sections in a facility designed to hold 1,200 inmates and housing 2,225. They felt they'd been illegally denied rights and conditions to which they were entitled. Illustrated by such practices as being allowed only one shower per week, Thank you. That was exactly the right reaction to that. Someone in the back went, uh. 
This is what prison conditions were like at Attica. That's why there was a riot. People just didn't think up a riot and do it because they were troublemaking underclass people. The government, as you recall, during Katrina said that uh, uh, people in the streets of New Orleans were shooting at helicopters and shooting at the cops. They weren't. Uh, they, they wrote help on the ground, remember, and were waving and trying to get help because there was dead people everywhere and the government wasn't helping at all. Um, every time there's a riot, a Rodney King in this very town, you, you know why these things start. Something goes to fucking far. Why are you telling us all this? Because I want you to know what Attica was. Um, one shower a week, one roll of toilet paper per person per month. The prisoners continued to unsuccessfully negotiate, blah, 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 blah. The situation was complicated by Governor Rockefeller's refusal to, to come to the scene. Well, some people say if he came to the scene, it would have exploded even more. Here's the worst part. Tear gas was dropped into the yard. Troopers and soldiers from the National Guard opened fire for two minutes. They killed everybody, basically. They killed a bunch of hostages, too. And they blamed the black Muslims for it. And the black Muslims insisted upon protecting the hostages from the regular meaner guys that were in the prison population. The black Muslims understood the importance of keeping the hostages safe through the whole negotiation process. Um, in any case, it was a tragic incident, and uh, people were sued after, and, and it never really left the American consciousness. At the time, it spoke exactly to the point of uh, too much police control uh, and indifferent government. Uh, so much of this will sound familiar to you now. Um, at the time, black militancy was at its peak, blah, 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 blah. Um, in any case, that's why he yells Attica. And uh, I wanted to read you one little quote here. Um, Gil Scott Heron wrote a, uh, a song called We Beg Your Pardon, right? Now, Gil Scott Heron is part and parcel of the 70s, too, in so much as he was a great poet, educator, teacher, and soul songwriter who had hits on the radio in those days. You may remember uh, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised is a, a, a gigantic Gil Scott contribution to the American discourse of rap and um, educating people in this country in a pop way. Um, he also did a record called Angel Dust later in the 70s. Now, he did a record called We Beg Your Pardon. Yeah, Angel Dust. We used to smoke Angel Dust in the 70s. Not you guys, but I was cool. And I'm from the 70s. And I smoked it a bunch of times. How cool were you, Greg? I went to see Gino Vanelli on it. I've made myself choke. I just want to stop and tell you how I feel about you, babe. I just want to stop. Yeah. Uh, he didn't sing that one then. That was... Angel Dust was freaky, you guys. Since we're talking about the 70s. I mean, I wouldn't recommend it, and I would never do it again. But the times I did it, it was like, it really set you fucking loose. I was scared to death a couple of times when I did it. And other times I was higher than I've ever been in my fucking life. I wouldn't call it pleasurable. It was like if a, a, a giant penis of cocaine entered you and there was no way to stop it from coursing through your bloodstream every second of the day and making every single synapse in your brain explode in everlasting bizarreness and fucking confusion. That's what it felt like as a high. It wasn't a focused, clean fucking, you know, sometimes you're taking drugs and you're like, oh yeah, right? Or, and then other times you take drugs and you're like, oh, this ball's so round, right? And then other times you've been drunk and you're like, man, I'd fuck a chair. You know, you know the many moods. But angel dust, angel dust made you go like. I have to build a kayak out of pelts. And I don't know what pelts are. 
I'm going to write President Carter a letter. That's how <laughs> fucked up I am. I'm going to write Vice President Mondale a brief, brisk missive telling him his shit is not in line. Now, they always said that the, uh, the Cholo contingent in San Jose smoked a lot of dust, but they did. And as you recall on the Beastie Boys first album, since everything is fucking Beastie Boys, uh, and John Cazale and Al Pacino were in a play written by one of the Beastie Boys fathers. As previously mentioned earlier in the show, an interesting nugget that I thought I'd drag back out of the fondue, like an unwelcome piece of beef that you didn't know you left at the bottom of that fucking boiling pot of oil. Oh my God, that's overdone. Are you going to put that in your mouth? I'm going to let it cool. Angel dust. It got you high. Uh, in the Gil Scott Heron song, We Beg Your Pardon, that was after uh, Ford pardoned Nixon. Ford was president. So was Nixon. But as Woody Allen said, they show him the picture in Sleeper of Nixon. We believe he was president of the United States. And Woody Allen goes, yes, but they counted the silverware every time he left the White House. <laughs> in the Gil Scott Heron song, We Beg Your Pardon, Gil Scott Heron is critical of Governor Rockefeller's handling of the riot, just mildly. Uh, my little sister got bitten by a rat, and Whitey's on the moon. <laughs> Fucking Gil Scott Heron. Uh... Stating that, and in the song, and I can't even do justice to Gil Scott Heron's voice. He had a beautiful baritone. Brother Richard X of Buffalo, New York, one of the prisoners there. A lot of the prisoners after the riot were tried again for crimes they committed during the riot and given more time. And no, yeah, yeah. And meanwhile, the guards took out the vengeance on the, on the Muslim, you know, whatever. This is America. You know the deal. I don't even have to fucking tell you what happened. This is America. Let me guess. It was all fucked up and there was a bunch of lawsuits. Yeah. Um, Governor Rockefeller, by the way, Nelson, who's yes from the family of Rockefellers, who yes are one of the richest families in American history, who yes made their money by, I believe, monopolizing the the train lines, was it, that took the oil from the uh, uh, fields to the refineries? That's how he first got involved and then became Chevron, then became Standard, then became Exxon, then became... Right? Uh, and then everything. And then bought the University of Chicago and basically all the national parks in the country. You know who the Rockefellers are. If you don't, I'm hipping you to the jive. Uh, what, is they, what do they say? Uh, isn't there a Rockefeller line in Putting on the Ritz somewhere? There's Rockefeller lines in lots of things. In the Gil Scott Heron song, We Beg Your Pardon, Scott Heron's critical of Governor Rockefeller's handling of the riot. And by the way, Nelson Rockefeller, who was governor of New York at the time, uh, later went on to be vice president, um, famously took a photo like this in front of everybody, like a Johnny Cash, Lenny Bruce fucking fuck you photo. That was a famous picture of him. And died while having sex with his mistress in his office. <laughs> he died during the act of physical love. Yeah, Nelson Rockefeller was a fucking... Maniac. His father. Oh God. His father was John D's son, so he was the grandson of John D. John D with the tall hat and the and the mustache. You've seen melodramas on TV and whatnot, and they go yeah yeah yeah. I'm going to tie you to the tracks and whatnot, and they've got a, a mustache and a long hat, a, a tall silk hat. That's John D. Rockefeller. In the 19th century, every bad guy, every robber baron was John D. That's Nelson's grandfather. Really, we thought this was going to be about cinema. <laughs> when you're talking about Sydney Limit, I then think these are irrelevant points. 
Governor Rockefeller's handling of the riot, stating that Brother Richard X of Buffalo, New York, faces 1,365 years behind bars for participating in Attica, and Rockefeller faces being the vice president of this country. It's time to cue up the movie. It's time to get it on. It's Al Pacino. It's John Cazale. It's Chris Sarandon, and it's Sidney Lumet. This movie will fucking rock you deep into the night. You'll never forget it if you ain't seen it, Matt Belknap. And if you have seen it before, you're going to dig it again. Cue it up right now. Ladies and gentlemen, the Greg Proofs Film Club is so very fucking proud to present Dog Day Afternoon. Uh, Hooray. Thank you for coming out. Uh, We'll just talk for a minute and then we'll go. Um, have you ever rooted for a bank robber as much in, in a movie? I mean, honestly, when you find out that this has gay marriage, um, Vietnam vet, uh, they're poor, the kids are on welfare, the, the, the wife's in a mental hospital, this one really has it all. Uh, and then the FBI are dickwads at the end, and when you see him up against the, uh, the bus at the end, and he sees all the tellers and Mr. Mulvaney, um, it's like he's saying goodbye to his family, right? His big, his big brown eyes, and he looks up, and he's like, ah, oh, this fucking close. Uh, it, oh, the, uh, there's one song in it, and maybe a little bit of Uriah Heep in the middle on another one. Uh, at the beginning of the movie, when everything goes crazy, and they, the phone rings for the fourth time, and Pacino picks it up and goes, WNEW, we play all the hits. That part's just like unbelievable rock and roll. Uh, <laughs> Has there ever been a more rocking bank robber when he's got the handkerchief and he's walking around going, yeah, yeah, like that part, and the crowd's going fucking crazy. Um, The people who were held hostage in the bank thought that the bank robbers were amazing, and one of them said if it had been a dinner party, it would have been hilarious. Um, uh, uh, The the fellow that they wrote it about, uh, I guess he's, is he out of jail now? No, he died. Oh, he died, yeah. Uh, But um, uh, this is a... Pacino's looks in this movie are just unbelievable, right? I mean, he looks like the Roman ideal. You know what I mean? There's a Mark Antony thing going on. He's so gorgeous in it. And as I stated earlier, before we got started, they just sweat. This movie is the sweatiest. At one, when he's dictating his will, um, how much sweat does Sylvia have on her at that point? Her chest is sweating. Uh, and is she the greatest character in the world? When they go, do you want to come out? And she goes, no, and goes back in. And they're doing interviews. How prescient, again, um, I think of La Dolce Vita, one of my wife's favorite movies, uh, as far as um, how prescient it was to uh, anticipate all the shallowness of today. The only thing this movie's missing is an iPod and someone taking a picture of themselves during the fucking bank robbery, right? There's helicopters flying over. People are doing interviews in the middle of a bank robbery. Uh, there's the TV crew phones him, and they're on TV until he says, fuck, and that's too much for TV. And that's the best part, right? They're in a hostage situation, and what pushes them over the line is he says, fuck. And then they put on, if you noticed in the, in the movie, a cartoon. <laughs> Uh, what, what? It was a Warner Brothers Looney Tune right here. Um, how great is Charles Durning as the detective? Um, yeah. He's fantastic in the movie. When he takes the water and he's stabbing Chris Sarandon at Leon's face and everything and trying to get him to talk. First he does the, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> And when the cop in the background snickers, when uh, uh, in a homophobic, yeah, moment, the cop in the background snickers and Charles Durning goes. (laughs) 
And when Sylvia says, I don't want to, I don't want to come out of the hall, he goes, you know, you're out. Stay out. Stay out. And uh, she goes, no, I'm going to go back in. My girls are in there. Charles Jenner goes. <laughs> he can't fucking believe it. James Broderick, who plays the FBI agent, who's so fantastic in this, so odious, right? Not just when he goes, uh, what is he saying? Uh, don't worry about it. We'll take care of Sal. And then... Horrible moment, and then that's when Al Pacino dictates his will. When the FBI goes, 10 minutes till we go, right? Uh, James Broderick's the, also, if you recall, if anyone was here for that one last month, is is the uh, uh, train driver in Pelham 123. So he's in every 70s New York movie. Again, if Martin, Land, uh, Martin Landau, if, Mar- if Walter Matthau and uh, Jerry Stiller walked into this movie, you wouldn't have been surprised <laughs> at any point. Uh, and it, uh, uh, did anyone anticipate that the driver of the bus at the end was actually a cop? No, no yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course she did. Uh, but the first time you see it, you're like, wow, they just sent a regular dude. And then, uh, yeah. Uh, it's an extraordinary movie. Does anyone want to say anything? I think Robbo's got a mic. We'll, we'll, we'll go, we'll just do a couple and then we'll wrap it up here because I think this was, we want to end on a high note, not just me blathering about the whole thing. But I wanted to just say uh, the difference between this one and Pelham 123, they talk a lot about how there's women in the workplace and that's a big issue. In this one, the women totally grab the fucking ball immediately. Uh, the crime is committed and, uh, uh, even Mr. Mulvaney at one point, after he's had the shot of insulin or whatever, goes, <laughs> what does Al Pacino say? What are you? I mean, here I want to go. You don't look good. And he goes, I just want to be left alone. <laughs> like, at that point, everyone in the movie has made their own autonomous decision to say fuck you to the man. There, there's not one character other than the cops in it who have it at a certain point. And then Maria gives uh, uh, Sal the rosaries at the end. And then, I'm afraid, friends... Because of the writing of Frank Pearson is good, you know he's going to die. No one gives you two crosses on a jangly string. And you put them on and then you fly away and then then you're in Algeria with a coconut shell and whatnot, and music's playing. No fucking way on earth. No fucking way on earth. It was Chekhov who said if you give someone a rosary, they die in Act Five. Aristotle initially said it in the poetics. Not literally. Yes, who's, who has the... Hi, what's your name? Christian. Hi, Christian. Hi, um, so Pacino is so unbelievable, and you referenced earlier uh, De Niro at the same time in, in Godfather 2. Can you, can you talk about, looking at their careers today, who had the bigger fall from grace? Who had the bigger fall from grace? Who? Yeah, between Pacino and De Niro. Oh, I don't think either of them did. I think what happened is, you know, they get older and then they ended up playing character parts and then they made a bunch of movies that you didn't like anymore. And uh, the movies that you get when you're in your your 30s are not the movies that you're going to get when you're in your 60s. You're going to end up making, you know... Some fucking schlockier shit. Uh, I think I, I think the uh, the body of both their work um, uh, is so overwhelmingly enormous. I think, uh, from my opinion, I, I like Pacino a little bit more in the seventies movies because uh, I think he um, there, there's a thing he does uh, in the Godfather and this one and Godfather two and Serpico that he does a little bit less later. By the time he gets to author author, he's already doing the proto Pacino we know of today. And by the time he gets to send of a woman, we're on a fucking roller coaster ride, <laughs> you know. And then and then now it's fun because when you see him in like the uh, 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 um, 
the Phil Spector picture, it's, it's, a, it's a look backwards and a look forwards at the same time, right? The Kevorkian movie and that one. He's really doing these enormous characterizations, but he's fucking big. It's like fixed bayonets and, you know, we're heading for the moon. He, even as Sonny in this movie, he does it early in the movie when he, he'll, he'll, when everybody gets out of the car before he even goes into the bank, he checks and then he checks again. And he does it in The Godfather a lot too. He, he looks around and he's, and he's, just being himself and looking around and he's not going like this like the, like when he played big boy caprice or whatever in dick tracy is the giant jumping off point where he so unfunnily does himself in that movie with such an insane lack of awareness that you're like you do you realize how scary you are in the movie dick tracy like you're supposed to be a comedy character and you're incapable of doing that when he's being mean to the chorus girls in dick tracy you're like oh fuck don't kill them and then De Niro, when, like you, you were saying, who had bigger fall for when De Niro did the, the pictures with Billy Crystal, the analyzed pictures, uh, it became wildly evident to me uh, over the course of his, his majestic career, and Robert De Niro is a superb actor, that comedy is not his metier. He can make as many fucking uh, fucker movies as he likes, but he's not funny. Uh, Gene Hackman's funny. There's a lot of 70s actors who could be funny as well. Um, Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, not the funny ones. <laughs> Dustin Hoffman, that's a funny actor. He can be funny all the time. Uh, they're too serious. There's too much of it in them. However, in this movie, he has great humor. And there's a big difference, I think. Um, I don't think either of them had a giant fall from grace. I, I would never impugn either of their enormous ass careers. I mean, you can say the same thing about Jack Nicholson, who's another actor who's exactly from the same era and has exactly the same amount of fucking unbelievable 70s movies. Uh, um, uh, the the last detail in Chinatown and every oh my god five easy pieces and then but then you see Jack Nicholson in like you know Riches of Eastwick or whatever and you're just having a good time at this point <laughs> everyone can't do the fucking Gettysburg Address every speech they write <laughs> I'm being generous because I think we all need to be generous. As you know, in show business, for those of you who are in it and those of you striving to be in it, it's impossible to make a good thing every fucking time you try to make a good thing. I do this every week, and about one out of every 18 is good. Um, I'm joking, of course. They're all marvelous beyond compare. And if they weren't, my ego would fucking compensate for it anyway, and I would just delude myself that it was marvelous. Uh, uh, to answer your question, and thank you for that. One more, and then we'll fuck off into the night. Yeah. Great. Mark. Hey. In the back. Straight ahead. Yeah. Um, I can neither see nor hear you. And this is why we love you. Thank you, darling. Uh, I love how uh, Charles Durian's character complains that uh, the first hostage uh, was not what he expected. Right. And he's in handcuffs. So I, just, I was kind of curious what some of your favorite observations the movie made about both race and the state of uh, employment conditions. Well, for, uh, obviously, one, right. You, the, you, you noted, uh, well noted that the first hostage comes out as a black guy, and even though he's obviously a security guard, they cuff him and throw him against the car, and even though he's quite ill, obviously, as well. Uh, there's a movie called um, The Incident uh, that's from the, uh, earlier in the 60s, and um, in that movie, they're on a subway car, and two sociopaths come in the car, played by Martin Sheen, and I can't remember the other actor. And uh, Brock Peters is in the car, and Ed McMahon <laughs> is an actor in that movie. Uh, and he's in the car, and the, uh, one, of the, one of the people in the car is gay. And uh, the, the, the two thugs 
uh, harass everyone on this fucking subway car. And finally, uh, uh, Bo Bridges gets up and says, sit down before I fucking put you down. And uh, then finally, they're released from the subway car. It kind of combines Dog Day and Pelham 123. Because you're trapped in a subway car, but it's a hostage situation. When the cops uh, finally get them and you think, oh my God, they're saved. The first thing they do is ignore the two criminals and grab Brock Peters, the black guy, and fucking throw him down on the ground. And uh, yeah, that's exactly what this movie is saying about race. Uh, also, um, uh, the, the economics of it. How many times does he mention how much people are paid? In 1975, and I was 15 years old when I saw this movie. Oh my God, Greg, what were the silent films like? Well, they were engaging, I'll tell you that. The thing about paying a nickel to see a movie was there was often a piano player. Uh, and then they'd play slides and what? Don't spit. Remember the Johnstown flood? And then we'd all sing, I'm forever blowing bubbles. It was crazy in those times. Uh, uh, is that people made $105 a week. Women made $105 a week. Um, by the way, gas was uh, like 25 cents. You could still make a phone call for a dime, and you had to make phone calls for a dime. No one carried a phone with them. Um, uh, but did you see how New York looked at the beginning of the movie? The field of garbage. And then the, 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 the food market that they showed, the fruit market and whatnot. New York looked like a burned out. The dog scavenging on the fucking sidewalks, the first shot of New York City. Uh, this is that awesome New York. And, and, and this is why I know I never shut up about the 70s and now, but... The 70s had uh, the Symbionese Liberation Army, the R- R- Red Brigade, the Bader Meinhof Gang, the Black September, the PLO, the PFLO, the Tupac. Uh, uh, the I mean, like, it, we, talk, we think we're so neato mosquito because we have terror and poverty and drones and shit. The 70s were fucking off the deep end scary, and the economy had completely tanked, as noted in all of these fucking movies where there's dogs scavenging on the fucking streets of New York and garbage everywhere, and people are making 100 fucking dollars a week, and there's fucked up veterans. Uh, that's the other point of the movie, right? That he's a Vietnam vet. He's showing, he's showing the teller how to, how to present arms, right? Uh, and he says, I was in Vietnam, and they go, why don't you get, why don't you get a job? That's what TV has to offer. <laughs> Why don't you get a job? And he, doing what? Yeah. Uh, I think this movie has everything to say about stuff like that. And I think every Sydney Limit movie does. Um, uh, other than The Wiz, which is not quite as... Not nearly as pointed about economics. I think you'll find... In the Emerald City, the winged monkey has the most freedom. And that it's imperative not to go down the road too hard. You're going to want to ease on down that fucking road. <laughs> Did anyone notice the Elton John song that starts the movie? Amarina, that's on Tumbleweed Connection. Uh, 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 and, and, there, and then as the movie fades, you see it all over New York. And then when it fades down, you realize it's on the radio of the car. And Al Pacino actually turns it off. Uh, and that's the only music in this fucking movie. Uh, it's claustrophobic and sweaty the whole fucking way through. Uh, uh, that, that probably should be enough. In, in uh, 12 days time or whenever we are, uh, 9, 10 days time, uh, June 11th, we're going to show Hitchcock's Lifeboat um, and then we'll be back to the 40s again. Um, after that, I don't know what we're going to do, but uh, I, I'm guessing there's going to be some... After watching this one tonight, it made me think, <clears throat> it might be time for Mean Streets or something, you know. Uh, 
we can really indulge ourselves. I'm not going to show Taxi Driver, and I'm not going to show Last Tango. You're going to have to watch those on your own. (laughs) I just can't get up after fucking Last Tango and go like, so. (laughs) How's that popcorn going down, everybody? This has been the smartest man in the world, Greg Proops Film Club Podcast. You've been the greatest film club in the world. This has been Dog Afternoon. I wish you nothing but love. Every page is turned to such a page. Every dollar is for the day. I thank you. Thank you very much and good night. <laughs>